continue a study that we started a few months ago looking at uh, aspects of, of uh, uh, biblical manhood in the scriptures. And so encourage you to come out. Summer's been a little, gets a little sparse with people traveling and everything, but we always have a very, um, very good and lively discussion. So uh, that's at Saturday morning at 7.30, and then the deacons meeting is at uh, 9 o'clock. Also, uh, Jim Myers is here, and while I am fumbling around here because I was just a couple of seconds short getting here, I'm going to put up an address. They have a new address for their um, ministry, and I'm going to put this up on on the screen so that everyone can um, can see it, write it down, keep a record of it, and I'll tell you why in in just a minute. But um, see if this will even work. Okay, that'll probably work. For some reason, my um, there we go. That's it. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. We all have tests. Jim Myers Ministries going through a couple little tests this summer. Nothing the Lord can't handle. But um, everyone knows that his business manager, uh, Dick Mills, went to be with the Lord uh, earlier this summer. And so they've had to reorganize uh, some of the responsibility stateside, and the Lord has provided uh, very well in, in filling that gap. But this week in Kiev on Monday night, there was a break-in at the college, and they stole the safe, and they got a substantial, substantial amount of money, cash, because that's how things have to operate when you're in that kind of a situation right now, a lot related to that that we don't need to go into, but um, uh, also all of their business documents, business documents related to being able to do what they do in Kiev and lease, uh, you know, things of that nature that are important to have and difficult to um, replace. So you need to be in prayer for that and need to be in prayer for um, the fact that the Lord will uh, resupply those finances. It's the Lord's money, and the Lord can supply that money just as well a second time as he did the first time. But I would encourage you that if you have the opportunity to pray about it and to see if you can, uh, and I'm talking not just to the congregation here, but also those who are listening, those who are on video and live streaming, that if the Lord has provided for you in a way that you can give above and beyond your normal giving uh, in order to help meet this need, then then I would encourage you to pray about it and give it serious consideration. So um, we trust the Lord to provide in all these things, and he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, so this is not anything that is too difficult for him. It's just, from our perspective, a little bit of a speed bump, but it's an opportunity to trust uh, to trust Him. Before we begin our time in the Word this evening, let's take some time to make sure that we are spiritually prepared to uh, study the Word 
Scripture commands again and again in many different ways using different kinds of vocabulary the importance of being cleansed, being in right relationship with the Lord and having uh, being pos- uh, or experientially sanctified. Uh, it's repeated many times in the New Testament with the command to be cleansed. And the only place where we have a description of what produces that is in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful that you are a great and magnificent God. And as Jim has taught in several lessons here this summer, that you are uh, omniscient and omnipotent, you're omnipresent, that there's nothing that we face in life that is uh, unknown by you and that you have not prepared for. Father, you are a great God, and we too often get caught up with the details of our own lives and forget your immensity, your greatness, your glory. And Father, we recognize that you control all things and that uh, these little speed bumps that Jim's ministry has experienced this summer are just opportunities for you to demonstrate your grace and your goodness to that ministry. We're thankful for all that they do and for his faithfulness, and we pray that you would uh, continue to supply their needs and to resupply that which has been taken and that this will not Uh, be an overwhelming problem, but one that can be easily remedied. Father, we pray for us as we face trials, tribulations, difficulties, heartaches in life, that we may always be reminded that these are designed to teach us to go to you. We do not know all the facts. Whenever we hit a difficult time, no matter how hard it is, sometimes we get angry, sometimes we get upset, Sometimes we just get depressed or discouraged because our plan and our agenda uh, doesn't conform to yours, and what you're trying to do is to get our attention. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be mindful in each of these circumstances that, that we need to be learning the lesson of trusting you and relying upon you and being uh, obedient to you. Now, Father, as we continue our study in First Peter, we pray you'd help us to understand Uh, what Peter is trying to communicate, and the implications for our spiritual lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I always get a little nervous when I'm here and we're hearing the thunder outside. Some of you were here that night about eight years ago when it started doing this about the time class started. By the time we were done at uh, when class was over at 8.30, the, the streets surrounding the church were about a foot and a half high with water. Nobody could get out, and uh, some people tried and had to come back, and we didn't make it home till midnight. So um, I don't think it's supposed to be like that tonight, but we um, who knows, maybe the Lord decided we have need a little social life after Bible class tonight. All right, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and also... 1 Peter chapter 2, Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2, and we'll start in 1 Peter with just some review 
but we're going to go into Ephesians 2 pretty rapidly because that connects back to what we are uh, examining in, uh, in context tonight. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, we are engaged in this study that seems to have a particular resonance with these Jewish background believers. And it's important to understand this because what Peter is doing is not saying, as I've indicated the last few weeks, he's not saying that this is something unique and distinct to these Jewish background believers. It's true for all believers. That's what Ephesians 2, uh, 12 through uh, 22 or 25 actually really establishes. But it is in, in a special way because of their history, because of their tradition, because of their background, because of their understanding of the Old Testament. Uh, this has a particular significance to them. I think that's why Peter's bringing this up and why he is going to these verses because there was something that was true of the Jews in the Old Testament in terms of being a, uh, uh, that they were to be a kingdom or actually royal priests, same language, same verbiage we have here in First Peter 2, that, um, that they never fulfilled as a nation. They were to be a priest nation to all of the other nations. They'll fulfill that in the kingdom. They'll fulfill that uh, when uh, the Lord returns, establishes his throne uh, in Jerusalem. But right now, we're not living in the Old Testament period. We're not living in a new covenant age. The sacrifice for the new covenant was made at the cross, but the new covenant is not initiated until Jesus comes back. We've done extensive studies in the past showing that that when you look at passages that resonate with new covenant language, that it shows that the new covenant itself isn't put into effect, doesn't, in, doesn't begin. Um, it's not this already not yet view that's, that's out there today, but the covenant itself does not begin, does not go into effect until there is the Messiah on the Davidic throne and the people uh, of Israel are back in the historic homeland that God has given them. And those are always the conditions that we see in the Scripture, that those things all come together. And therefore, we cannot be seeing the new covenant in any way, shape, or form today. We are in preparation for it in terms of our spiritual life. And every now and then I get questions from people that say, well, why, do we, why did Paul say that we're ministers of the new covenant? And that is because those who are saved today under the church-age gospel will participate in the fullness of blessing when the new covenant is established in the kingdom. And this is, and then the issue of Christ saying at the Lord's table, this is the new covenant of my blood, that's the sacrifice that establishes the, the uh, covenant, uh, that the new covenant. But that doesn't begin the new covenant. It just establishes the sacrifice that is the basis, uh, basis for that covenant. So in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, the focal point is on spiritual growth. That spiritual growth is the basis of the command in verse, verse 2 that uh, we are to crave, we are to desire the milk of the word. And, and that's such an important thing. Uh, last year we talked about having a Bible reading uh, challenge to people uh, and we put that up on the DBM website, and a lot of people are following through with that and reading the scripture through 
on a regular daily basis. Some people have already finished reading um, uh, through the New Testament, I mean through the whole Bible. Uh, they got they sped up. Other people are consistently plodding along, and I get reports every now and then, and, and people are realizing things in the Scripture that they never knew was there because they've never read the Bible before. Uh, I've been um, meeting with a young man for the last uh, year or so, and he was trying to start a ministry, and when we were first talking about uh, 15 or 16 months ago, I said, well, have you ever read your Bible all the way through? And he said, no. And we talked about that a little bit. And then one day he said, I really got convicted last night thinking about that, that here I want to start a ministry and I've never read the Bible all the way through. And you might say, well, here I want to live my Christian life and I've never read the Bible all the way through. And that is something that can be said for, for many people. I mean, this is the most important thing. And uh, uh, Jim uh, gave a great message Sunday morning and talked about the fact that, that, that Scripture indicates that we're to remember uh, the mighty things that the Lord has done. It's hard to remember something you're ignorant of. And the mighty things that are in the Scripture are the mighty things that are repeated again and again in the Scripture. Uh, they don't compare with some of the things that we focus on in our day-to-day lives, and we think, oh, I'm sure glad the Lord protected me when I could have been, uh, I could have gotten that speeding ticket the other day, or the Lord protected me from from getting involved in that accident, or, or, or maybe we, we're going to get into a business deal, and it turned turned out later we learned that it wasn't so good, and the Lord protected, and those things are all true and and fine, but but they pale in in significance to the historic, great, wonderful acts of God. In Acts chapter 2, it doesn't say that the apostles uh, spoke or, or proclaimed the gospel in on the day of Pentecost. It doesn't say that. A lot of people read that into the text. It doesn't say that. It says they talked about the wonderful works of God. I think what they did was they talked about those wonderful works in the Old Testament and tied everything together so that people could understand what those two disciples on the road to Emmaus came to understand, and that is that from Genesis to Malachi, everything talked about the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything talked about the Messiah. But to be able to do that, you have to know the Bible. You have to be reminded of these things, and that doesn't just happen, you know, oh, I read my Bible through a year, great. Three years later, I think I'll read it through again. Uh, that doesn't work that way. We need to know the Word. We need to crave the Word. We need to desire it more than anything else. Because when you die, that's the only thing that's going to go with you and transition from this life to the next. We're going to get a resurrection body. We're going to get eternal life. We're going to get a lot of things that are different. We're not going to take any money with us. Your, your degrees, my degrees... All of those things that we've accomplished in this life aren't going to go with us. The one thing that transitions is our knowledge of the Word and the Bible doctrine that's in our soul. And that Bible doctrine that's in our soul isn't just what we've learned academically. It's what we've applied and we have drilled on again and again and again. And um, if you've ever been involved with sports, you've ever been involved with music, you've ever been involved with uh, any kind of dance or athletics, uh, you know for, for one thing that 
You can't master something if you don't practice it and practice it and practice it. And uh, the old adage that practice makes perfect is wrong. Perfect practice makes perfect. If we're practicing it wrong, then, then that's what gets embedded in our soul. And we've got to practice the faith rest drill and those other spiritual skills over and over and over again. And what I see happen so many times in life is that, that when, when folks get older, whether they're, they're in their 30s or 40s or 50s, they, they have a blowout on, on their uh, road to sanctification and spiritual maturity because they confuse academic knowledge of the word with practicing it and put and implementing it day to day, and then uh, suddenly something happens and uh, life blows up on them, and they get upset with God because they really didn't internalize and practice. They just have a lot of nice organized notebooks. So that's the focal point here: is growing and carrying out the ministry that God has given us. And that's what he develops when he talks about priesthood in verses 4 through 9. And so we looked at those verses that we're to come to him. We're, we are, are actually it should be understood since coming to him as to a living stone. And that living stone is Jesus who's rejected by men, but choice uh, or actually, we'll see that that should be translated by God, choice and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, what we've seen here in terms of interpretation is that the body of Christ is comprised of Gentiles and Jews. Peter's writing to Jews. That doesn't mean it doesn't apply to Gentiles. All members of the body of Christ are equal. Uh, the Jews are a subset, the remnant of the Jews, as Paul talks about them in Romans 11.5, and that's the audience. But what he says that applies to them as church-age believers also applies to all, all believers. And so we come to Jesus, and as I pointed out, uh, he's a living stone who's rejected by men. And then there, there are these words I put together on this slide. And one thing I wanted to bring up again, this word eclectos, which has been historically translated as elect. And you'll even have perhaps memorized at one point in time that there are several elections in Scripture. There's the election of Israel, which I think is true. Then Jesus is elect, which isn't true. Because the idea of elect has the idea of making a selection of one out of others. Think about that. What others would God the Father have chosen Jesus from? From what group would he have selected Jesus? It's a select group of one. Therefore, it's not like an, an election where you're choosing one from many the emphasis here in context is talking about his choiceness, his quality, his excellence. Because as we see from the quote in Isaiah and the quote here, the, the, the words that are used that surround this are words that also talk about his preciousness, his value. He's tried. Um, that's important. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, as I pointed out, calls him a tried or an approved stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. All of those relate to his quality, his excellence, not his 
that he's been chosen uh, for a specific task from among others. There are no others. And uh, so the language that we see behind uh, verse 4 and verse 5 from Isaiah 28, 16, and Isaiah 8, 13, which talks about uh, the, the stone of stumbling and rock of offense, re- relating this to the Messiah. Verse 5 says that you yourselves also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I think understanding this is really a key to understanding the next three verses because the next three verses are giving quotes from the Old Testament to substantiate what he is saying here. So this is talking about something that is being constructed not in our spiritual lives, but in terms of the church, the body of Christ, that we're being built up a spiritual house. But um, it's, it, I know that getting into the grammar gets confusing, but if you don't understand what the text is saying in the original, then it can get confusing because you're misapplying what you think it says because it doesn't say what you thought it said. And it's confusing with Peter. He talks about being built up, a spiritual house, and this word spiritual house, because it's in the nominative case, can't be the object of being built up. It has to be understood as relating to a, an appositional description, another description of what these living stones are. And so I think that it should be moved up to the front of the verse. You yourselves also... A spiritual house, that's what we are. It's a building project. And, and uh, the Holy Spirit is the build, building engineer. I've got to look outside too. When all of a sudden it starts raining, I see everybody turn and start looking towards the window. I pastored a church in Irving, Texas back in the uh, late 80s. And one Easter, and it was, a, it was in a YMCA had about a 15, 16-foot ceiling, and the entire uh, wall of the, of the church was glass and looked out on the parking lot. And church started about, uh, about 10 o'clock, and it was Easter morning, Resurrection Day, and just about 10.45, 15 minutes into the message, it started snowing. Everybody was looking outside, so we had to stop, pay attention to the snow for a few minutes. Yes, it's snowing in Dallas, Texas on Resurrection Day in the middle of the spring. This is, never happens. So, yes, it's raining outside and probably won't last. Okay, we're being built. We are a spiritual house. That's what we are. That's what the church is, the body of Christ. So the body of Christ is one metaphor that's used to talk about the church as a living organism with Christ as the head and we're the members, and that's one analogy that that Paul uses. And here we see this other analogy that it's like a house. And we're going to ask the question, what kind of house? In a minute. As living stones were being built up to a living priesthood. Now, this is where Ephesians 2 comes in. So let's turn back to Ephesians 2 and just 
briefly review what we looked at last time because this is so important for controlling our understanding of what is happening in the body of Christ uh, today. We started in verse 14, we summarized this, and basically what we've seen is that there's two barriers that are indicated in this section. One barrier is a barrier that exists between Jew and Gentile in the Old Testament. That was described as the barrier of the law. The other barrier is the barrier that exists between man, the Jew and Gentile, and God. Jesus in his death destroys both of those barriers. So that the the dividing wall, as the text says, between Jew and Gentile is now removed. That that distinction that existed in the Old Testament um, is, is not there anymore. And I pointed out in verse 18, For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. The we both is Jew and Gentile. We both have access by one spirit. Later on in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, uh, Paul is going to talk about the fact that we are, it's one body, it's one spirit. Uh, we have a unity in the body of Christ. There's one body, one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. The one baptism there is not saying that the baptism by the Holy Spirit uh, is, is the only baptism and there's no water baptism because the water baptism is a physical, visible, visual aid for teaching about spirit baptism. Spirit baptism is a very abstract idea, and so water baptism helps us to understand this profound doctrine related to positional truth or our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and, and resurrection. And so then there's a shift, and he begins to talk about this citizens that were no longer strangers and foreigners, but were fellow citizens with others, with Jew and Gentile, members of this household of God. There we get this idea of a house again, and that it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So that helps us to understand this building idea. Well, what kind of building is this? Now, there is, that's developed when we get into the next couple of verses. Verse 21 starts off, in whom? That's a reference back to Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. So in whom? The whole building. That's this new edifice that's being developed through the living stones you and me through the living stones that are constructing this new house. The whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So what this new building is, is a spiritual temple. So let's review a couple of things related to what we're studying here. First of all, in the Old Testament, we had a physical building. It was originally a tent, a mobile home, going through the wilderness that was a dwelling place for God. And then once they entered into the land, they had a semi-permanent location at uh, Shiloh for uh, probably 300 to 350 years. And then there was a period when the ark went on. You know, God decided he wanted to go on a, a, a little walk and went on a little travel through the uh, uh, Gaza Strip and came back. 
brought himself back without any help from man, showing that he's perfectly capable uh, to take care of himself. And when he came back, the, the ark was, we're not really sure where it was kept, but it may have been kept just a little north of the, uh, or a little west, rather, of the Temple Mount. It may have been kept at Nob. Uh, the, the scripture really isn't clear until David brings it. Uh, it's at, at the home of, um, of um, the name escapes me now, at, uh, what's his name? Do you remember? Obed-Edom? Yeah, for a little while. And then it's brought somewhere near, the uh, vicinity near the Temple Mount. Uh, for for a few years, and then, um, and then it's put into the temple, a permanent structure built by by Solomon, and that temple was beautiful, and it was uh, just amazing. People would come uh, from all over the world to see this magnificent temple that was designed to be that, not to give glory to the architect. That's what happens in the second temple when Herod the Great decides to remodel the temple uh, so that it would be the eighth wonder of the ancient world and everybody would come and ooh and ah over what Herod built. But this was designed to reflect the magnificence and the glory of God so that when people came, they would reflect upon the majesty of God and upon the greatness of God and upon his grace and provision to Israel. But if you went on to the Temple Mount precinct, you would discover that there were certain social divisions that were in effect for those who wanted to worship God. If you were a woman, you could, or excuse me, if you were a Gentile, you could only go so far. If you were, if you were a woman, you could go a little bit further. If you were a Jewish woman, you could go a little bit further. If you were a Jewish male, you could go a little bit further still. If you were a priest, you could get a little bit further. And then if you were the high priest, you could go into the Holy of Holies once a year uh, where God dwelt between the cherubim. So that there were these distinctions that were made in relation to their their closeness uh, to God. And now part of this is showing that these divisions have broken down because, in our second point, it's through the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we become one in the body of Christ. So that Ephesians 4, 4 talks about one body, uh, Jew and Gentile alike. That's further explained in Galatians three twenty six to 28. We're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So this, though, is empowered and energized by God the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's building this temple, verse 22, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, in 1 Corinthians three, sixteen and six, thirteen, you have references to Christ. I mean, to the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. I think both of those places are talking about the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, in each individual believer. Romans chapter eight also talks about uh, the in, the Holy Spirit indwelling each individual believer. But here it's talking about the Holy Spirit who is energizing the church. The 
Greek phrase is in numity, which I think almost always indicate when it's used with that, well, when in is used with the spirit, almost always it means uh, or indicates instrumentality or means that is God, the Holy Spirit, is doing something or being used by God to do something. Now, back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Back here we see that, that there, there's something left out of the New King James. There's, it's usually added or, or uh, accurately translated in, I think, the New American Standard and some other um, modern other translations that are updated. It expresses the goal to a holy priesthood. There's a preposition there. That's why there's a difference between uh, the, the New King James, which puts spiritual house, a holy priesthood, appositionally when they're both different grammatical forms and don't relate to each other. Uh, we're being built up to something. There, there is a training here. We, we, are, we have a priesthood, but we are training now in the use of that priesthood because of where we're going in terms of the future. So it's not an emphasis on the present reality of that priesthood as much as it is a an emphasis on the training in that priesthood today in light of where we're going. That in Revelation, as we will see, we are going to be a kingdom priest to God. And in other verses, it describes us as kings and priests. So it's a little different terminology, a little bit different word than what's used here in um, 1 Peter 2.9 for a royal priesthood. It's the same root, but it's a different form of the word. And we'll look at that in just a minute. Now, the purpose for this training right now is to offer up spiritual sacrifices. I talked about this last time. It's a sacrifice of praise. We should be training ourselves to learn how to offer up the sacrifice of praise. I don't think this is just limited to singing, although that's definitely part of it. Uh, but I think it's also limit, it also is expressed through the things that we say. Now, we live in a, a somewhat superficial uh, sentimental time in in Christianity. People don't take the time to think very deeply or profoundly about about their own spiritual life or their walk with the Lord. And often, what we see in share groups or home Bible studies and different things like that is a rather off the cuff, uh, top of the head kind of expression of, "Oh, let me think of something or say something. I want to hear my own voice." Uh, expression of something that God did for me in the last week. And and that may be true, but when you read Scripture, and this is one of the things I think that, that if you didn't catch it Sunday morning, Jim emphasized as well, is the more you read Scripture and you read through the Psalms for yourself, it should elevate the quality of the kinds of things that you express when you're talking about what God has done in your life. That becomes a pattern and a model for how we should express praise to God. We can declare, one way we talk about the Psalms is declarative praise. We declare what God has done. Another way that we do it is that we, um, we, descri- we describe it and we give thanks to God for, 
for what he has done. And, and they're more than just the trivial things, although, you know, God takes care of the details in our lives. But often the reason we go to trivial things is simply because that's the easiest, that's the simplest. We haven't given it a whole lot of thought, and we're just, we, we don't want to be caught flat-footed, uh, and we want to say something. And so we need to think. Uh, I know when I was, when I was younger and um, <clears throat> growing up, working in a ministry, working at Camp Penile, working in other ministries, there would, you'd hear people talk about having a quiet time. And, and sometimes that was denigrated a little bit as, well, that's, that's, that, you're not really doing real Bible study if you're just having a little 30-minute devotional. But the older I get, the more I realize that, that when I get up in the morning and I get my cup of coffee and I cook my breakfast real quick and go sit down in my chair and I have my coffee and, and uh, get through with, uh, with breakfast, then when I open my Bible and I spend the next 30 minutes just thinking about the Word and thinking about the Lord that, uh, and writing down things, having something to, you know, underlining in the Scripture, making notes, thinking about it at, at more than a superficial level, that my morning seems to go just a whole lot better than if I get up in the morning, as someone here pointed out not too long ago, if I get up in the morning and read Breitbart and the Drudge Report and look at the uh, mainstream media, I start the day more than a little out of fellowship. It, it just uh, it, It's important to have that time uh, because it focuses us. And, and our focus should be on the Word. It's not uh, something we need to hurry through. We need to make time for it. So... That's part of the spiritual sacrifices that, that we make, giving thanks, uh, praise, giving financially. All of these are part of the ways that we serve the Lord. Our life is to be a, a, a living sacrifice, and that doesn't mean this sense that we've given something up, um, that I gave this up for God or I feel some loss in my life. Uh, and, or, and, and that that's essential to the idea of sacrifice. What's essential to the idea of sacrifice is giving something to God for his service, and the idea that, it, that I may feel a loss or not is not significant. I know that you've had the same experience that I've had. Some of you have done this with your kids. Some of you have done it with, with somebody else you know. But you have somebody come along, and you know they have a financial need, and you give them a hundred bucks or a couple hundred bucks or maybe more. And sometimes you give them that and you say, well, I guess I just won't go out to dinner tonight. And other times it makes no impact whatsoever on what your plans and ideas were. You just, you had the money, they needed it, and you just gave it to them and moved on. You didn't give them a second thought. That's as much a sacrifice in giving to God as uh, thinking, oh, well, I guess I won't go out to eat or I won't go buy that new uh, whatever it is this month. I'll have to wait until next month. Sometimes we feel a sense of loss. Sometimes we don't. Uh, But that idea of a sense of loss is about as relevant to uh, sacrifice as how you feel is relevant to the confession of sin. It's a it may be there. It may not be there. That's not what sacrifice is talking about. So we give these sacrifices. Now, we do this as part of our priesthood. So I want to go over a few 
points related to what a priest is in the Scripture. First of all, all church-age believers, Jew and Gentile alike, are set apart to God. We are positionally holy. Holy is one of those words that so many people today don't use and don't know. That's been true for a long time. It's, we overuse words, and then they lose their significance and meaning. And so we don't understand holy. Holy means to be set apart to the service of God. And when we go back into the Old Testament, we realize that for the vessels in the temple to be used in the service of the temple, they had to be cleansed. Before a priest could, be, uh, could serve the Lord in the ministry in the temple, he had to be, he had to be cleansed. He had to come in and go to the laver and wash his hands and wash his feet. Jesus uses that same imagery when he talks to Peter in in John chapter 13, and he says, if you don't let me wash your hands and your feet, which is a, which is a depiction of experiential cleansing, he said, you won't have any, uh, an inheritance with me in the kingdom. So that's pretty serious. So we have to be we have to be cleansed. That relates to experiential cleansing. In Exodus 19.6, God said of the Jewish people, of the Israelites, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Or you could translate that royal priests. They, clearly, the, the part of speech there clearly can indicate that. Royal priests and a holy nation. A nation set apart to my service. So the whole nation was to be have a priestly function in relation to the rest of the rest of the world. We'll look at that in more detail in a minute. In Ephesians 1.14, Paul says of church age believers, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We're to be set apart before him. So what's true what's true of the Israelites and, and the Jews under the Mosaic Law is also true of church-age believers. It, one, the church age, though, it, the church isn't replacing Israel. It is that both are peoples of God and that they are being used by God in different ways, but to be used by God and to serve him, they both have to be holy. A second thing that we learn about the priesthood is that every church-age believer has direct access to God. Now, this relates to a basic definition of, of a priesthood, the difference between a prophet and a priest. A prophet represents God to men, and a priest represents men to God. That's the core functional difference uh, between the two. The priest represents men to God, and so he is bringing sacrifices and offerings on the part of people uh, to God in order to uh, uh, praise God and to provide for him. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that the priesthood has access to God. And in the church age, our priesthood has direct access to God. Every believer, let us... Every believer, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? Because we have a high priest who has passed through the heavenlies and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So because of that, we can intercede, we can pray for ourselves, bring our petitions before the Lord, and we can intercede for others. A third thing that we learn about church-age 
believer priests is that we are to offer our life as a living sacrifice to God. Our lives should be an offering of service to God. We're here to serve Him. We're not here to serve our own selfish pleasures. That doesn't mean that we can't enjoy life. That doesn't mean that you can't have a good time, that you can't pursue a career, that you can't engage in the hobbies and the uh, fun things that you like to, but it's all under the umbrella of of serving God. Romans 12.1, Paul says, I beseech you, I beg you, I plead with you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that's grace orientation, understand grace, then we can understand service. Not like a lot of legalists. There are a lot of churches that want to have you get involved in what they believe is Christian service, which basically means teaching Sunday school or helping out in the kitchen or going on visitation or something like that before you know anything. In my first church, I had some guy tell me that if you want to build this church, as soon as you get a visitor in the church, you give them a responsibility. Well, why should I do that? They don't know anything. I'm not even sure if they're a believer. But that's that's how the world operates in terms of building an organization in the flesh. So we are to present our bodies. And why does Paul say bodies? doesn't say mind. The next verse, he talks about renewing our thinking. But here he talks about our bodies because that represents the whole person. Your, your mind is inside your body, and when you talk about your body, you're talking about not only your overt actions and what you do and where you go, but also the thinking that goes behind it. So by using the term bodies, he's talking about the whole person, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's that sacrifice of service. Holy, it's set apart unto God, and it's acceptable to God, not because of what we've done, but because we possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. We've been positionally sanctified, so we can do that. And then he says, this is your logicon. That's that same word used for the Word of God in, in 1 Peter 2.2. 2. It's that reasonableness. It's that, that rational expression of truth. That's, uh, that's Once we understand that, we understand where to serve the Lord. A lot of different ways. I've been encouraged over the years as I've watched people in this congregation uh, take the initiative to develop ministries, some small, some not so small, and they they just wanted to serve the Lord in some capacity, and uh, and that that it's it's so much better when it happens that way than for the pastor or uh, the deacons in the church to come and say, well, you know, and there's nothing wrong with this either. But some people, you know, a lot of churches have programs now. In and of itself, that's not that's just a structured way of doing something, but it's the way they approach it that's the problem. Uh, and ca- or can be the problem, uh, and, and it's always something that's initiated from the top down. We need to have a missions project, and we're going to start recruiting people to support this missions project, rather than somebody coming up and saying, I really have a desire to go do X, Y, or Z. We have this missionary opportunity here. Uh, what what, what can, do I need to do in order to get that going? Or I'd like to do something with uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship. Who do I talk to? How can I get involved? Where the individual, as a result of their own spiritual growth, is taking the initiative 
uh, to serve the Lord. It's much more effective that way than to have, uh, have it come from the top down in terms of church leadership. So every believer is to offer his life as a living sacrifice uh, to God. Fourth, all believers, Jew and Gentile, are equal in access to God because we've been placed in Christ. That's that positional truth. Some people call it identification truth. It's the same thing, that we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, so we're a new creature in Christ. And because of that, we have new privileges, we have new responsibilities, and we have a new destiny. So this is what Paul, uh, Peter is saying in verse 5, as living stones, a spiritual house, you are being built up into a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We talked about that last time and a little bit just a few minutes ago. And then we see in verse 6 starts with the therefore, and verse 7 starts with the therefore, and that tells us that we ought to see why he's doing that. He's quoting these Old Testament passages in order to show a comparison, that this is how what, some of the things that God predicted in the Old Testament, what he was doing, and now we're seeing this uh, take place within our own lifetime. So in verse 6, Peter says, Therefore it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him, on him, notice that identifies the cornerstone as a person, on him will by no means be put to shame. Now, he gets this language from Isaiah 28, 16, and I've had the slide up here last week and this week uh, from the New King James Version and also from the NET Bible, the New uh, English Translation, to show uh, what the source for this language. God says, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation. Now, in the midst of Isaiah's prophecy... In this chapter, in chapter 28, there's been a strong condemnation of the religious leaders who have led the people into apostasy and idolatry. And now what God is saying is he's pointing to his gracious provision that even though he's going to bring judgment on Israel for their apostasy, he still hasn't deserted them. He's going to provide a solution. And let me remind you of something. It's easy for us to forget this that sometimes when, when things happen that are not what we want, when things happen that, are, that we look like, oh, my life is just going to be destroyed now, when things get really tough, maybe you've received a diagnosis of cancer, or maybe you've had an unexpected death of a loved one, or maybe you've discovered that there's a very real chance with the oil downturn that you may... You may uh, not have a job in another month or less. And these kinds of things tend to rock us to our very core. They tend to scare a lot of us. And it's an opportunity for us to trust, uh, to trust in the Lord. And uh, whether it's divine judgment that may come our way for bad decisions or sinful, uh, some sin in our life, or whether it's just because God is testing us or training us, 
The solution's the same. That is, make sure you're in fellowship, walking by the Spirit, applying the Word. That doesn't mean it'll go away. Let me tell you, there are people that I know and you know that I, I, I don't know how they do it. Every time I talk to them, there's, it's another disease. It's another job loss. It's another disaster. It's another problem. But they always seem to, some people always seem to be happy. They know that the Lord's providing. They've grown. They've learned in those situations. Other people, they hit a couple of big speed bumps, and it's like running into a brick wall, and they just go to pieces. The Lord's training us. And so the Lord was training Israel. He's bringing discipline on them for their sin. And he said, but I am going to provide a solution. And that solution is going to be this foundation, this foundation stone, this something that is solid. Um, it's uh, compared to a cornerstone. That is the, that, that which is critical to upholding all of the uh, architecture. It's a tried stone. That means it's been tested. It's been approved. It can carry the weight. It can handle it. It is a stone of, of proving in the Hebrew. It's precious, valuable, significant. It is precious because of what it does, what it provides. It's a sure foundation. And then the issue becomes clear in the last line. Whoever believes will not have uh, panicked. I like the way the NET translates that. The one who maintains his faith in the midst of disaster will not panic. They're going to be able to survive the difficulty and bring glory to the Lord. So this is a focal point there. So this is why, why Peter is quoting this, that he's talking about this cornerstone. That's, that's the focal point going back to, to verse 4, the living stone. What living stone is this? It's the one that Isaiah talked about that is the, uh, that is the chief cornerstone who is choice and preciousness. That's where he got that language in verse 4. And then in, did I skip 6? No, therefore it is also contained in Scripture there. Yeah, verse 6, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Then in verse 7 we read, Therefore to you, see it's a second therefore. So it's a second, it's another application. The conclusion here is related to how you respond to that cornerstone. You have a choice. Some are going to believe in the cornerstone. Others are not going to believe in the cornerstone. That's the issue in all of life. The cornerstone is a reference to the Messiah. Over and over again in the uh, prophets, there's this reference to uh, the Messiah as a stone, as a cornerstone. And so in verse 7, Peter says, therefore to you who believe, he's precious because he's precious to God. He's valuable to God. To those who believe, he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, Ah, the text says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's from Psalm 118, verse 22, which I have at the bottom of the slide. Now, we studied that historic in context, and historically that referred to um, 
the event of Israel coming back into the land, building the second temple, dedicating the second temple, that they had been overlooked and, down, and, and trodden down by the, by the big empires, the empire builders. That's who the, uh, the builders represents, is the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and these little bitty Jews that are in the way. Well, they're just in the way. And as these nations came through, they conquered all these other people, and they uh, relocated them throughout their empires. But something unique happened with Israel. They're brought back, and, and God is restoring them to that place where they will be a cornerstone in history. So, so the, the original context of Psalm 118.22 is talking about something that happened historically. By, by the way, at, uh, in verse uh, 23 or 24, I believe, it says, Behold, this is the day that the Lord has made. And see, that's another verse that gets trivialized by, by a lot of folks who don't pay attention to the context. Uh, it's not talking about waking up in the morning and the sun's coming up and it's a bright day and it's, golly, it got down to 76 last night. See, we've had a hot summer because the lows in the morning are 81 and 82. Uh, and if we get a 76 in the morning, we feel a little bit refreshed. But that's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about waking up in the morning and having a good cup of coffee and uh, the day's going to look good and we feel refreshed. Maybe it got down to 60 in the morning and we're cool. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the day in context in Psalm 118 is the day of rejoicing that the temple has been rebuilt and that God has restored his worship in Israel and is restoring Israel to their plan. This is something significant. This is like the 4th of July. This is a huge celebration. It's a great day. It's a significant day. And it's applied prophetically to when the Lord returns at the second coming and establishes his kingdom. Now, those are great days. These are not just a good day because I'm getting out of bed and My name's not in the obituaries today. Okay? So, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then he quotes in verse 8 from Isaiah 8.14. Isaiah 8.14 talks about he will be as a sanctuary. That's That's the Messiah again. He will be as a sanctuary, a, a holy place, a dwelling with God for God. He will be as a sanctuary, but... For those who don't believe, he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. There's that prediction that they're going to reject him. To both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So Peter takes that and he applies it and, and reminds them that there's going to be some who believe, there's going to be some who are disobedient. Those who are disobedient saw the cornerstone, rejected him, and they stumbled over him. He was offensive to them. And the reason they stumbled was they're disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Now, I think that's real important. Gentiles were not appointed to the word. Israel was appointed to the word. They were the custodians of the scripture. So again, this reminds us that that Peter is talking to Jewish background believers. Now, I drew this little chart to illustrate that verse. He talks about the cornerstone. To God, he is choice and precious. To the believer, 
They're not put to shame. No matter what happens in life, when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to see how it all worked out. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And we may look at things in this life and think that, oh, God's not paying attention. I'm mad at him. But guess what? God's still in control. We just don't know all the facts. We don't know everything that's that's going together. We don't know that God isn't taking us through this because somebody in our periphery that we don't know anything about is watching us, and it gives us an opportunity to be a great witness and testimony to God's grace in the midst of difficult times. So the believer is not put to shame, and to the believer, the cornerstone is choice. But to the disobedient, they reject the stone, and the stone is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So what we see here is that Peter's made his point back in verse 5 that we are being built up. We are a spiritual house that's being built up toward a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's present tense. We're functioning as priests now, but we're learning for something in the future. And so that sets the, the, the parameters for our interpretation because when we get to this next verse, we get into some difficulties. One of the difficulties is that some people in church history who believe that the church has completely replaced Israel and argue that the church is an entity to replace Israel, look at this and say, see, Peter is saying that that Israel is no longer the chosen nation or the chosen generation or holy nation. They've been replaced by the church because he takes this language from Exodus 19 and he applies it to the church. We ran into this same kind of problem when we were looking at Matthew 21:23, when Jesus says to the Pharisees that, <clears throat> that you are going to see this judgment, but God is going to take this away from you and give it to another nation. And some people have said, see, that's the end of Israel. They're replaced by this new nation, the church. Now, we have to be careful with the language here. I think what Peter is doing here is he's showing an analogy, that just as God called Israel to be a chosen, actually a choice generation, emphasis of quality, a royal priesthood, same language, that we have in the Greek Septuagint from the Old Testament, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What he's saying is, in the Old Testament, if you were Jewish, in the Old Testament under Mosaic law, you were going to be in a priesthood. And part of that priesthood was to proclaim the greatness of God the one who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. Well, Paul uses that same language, that we're to shine his light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation as believers uh, over in Philippians chapter 2. And so what, what Peter is saying is this was true in terms of who we were as Jews, who you were as Jews. But now you're in Christ. You're in this new spiritual temple. And it's even more true in this new spiritual temple. Now, one of the things that I've seen come along here that I just want to briefly touch on is the use of this word nation here. 
because what happened, what ha- what's happened because of replacement theology, and there's a big battle taking place right now to try to fight uh, replacement theology, is that there have been people who have argued that the church is not a nation. I think they've taken this word too technically. And the way they support this is from a passage in, in Romans chapter Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, towards the end, um, Romans 10, 19. And I've seen this in more than one place where someone has argued that, well, you see, the church isn't a nation. This can't be applied to the church as a whole. It's got to be applied only to the Jews because they're a nation. The church isn't a nation. Let's look at, (coughs) and they go to this passage. Romans 10.19. Now, what does Romans 10.19 say? Paul quotes from the Old Testament. Paul says, to introduce his quote, he says, But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, and this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. And they only quote the first line. The first line says, I will provoke you to jealousy that you would be Israel. I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not not a nation. That's as far as they go in the quote. Now, if you know Romans 11, you know that God says that he's going to use the Gentiles in the church by blessing them through salvation to provoke Israel to jealousy. So they immediately connect that to what Paul says in Romans 11 and say, see, it says there, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. Well, let's read the next line. The next line is in synonymous parallelism. God says, I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Well, in the first line, it says they're not a nation. The second line, they're a foolish nation. But in one line, they are a nation. In the next line, they are not uh, not a nation. So you can't use this. You can't pull a phrase out of context and argue that Romans... Uh, 1019 says that the church is not a nation. It doesn't work that way. Uh, has other implications. I think part of and, and in the Hebrew, you have two different words that are used there. Uh, you have the word am and the word um, uh, and the word uh, lao, uh, am in Hebrew and, and goy in Hebrew. But they're used in poetry. So they're synonyms of one another. So you can't apply a technical language. And I think this is a problem sometimes we get into in exegesis, especially when we're fighting a a heretical doctrine. We tend to get too myopic in the text to try to make it answer a question that it's not addressing. It's not answering, it's not making that point uh, related to replacement theology at all. It's just making an analogy between the distinctiveness of Israel in the Old Testament and the distinctiveness of church-age believers and that these Jewish background believers can realize their priesthood and that significance in the body of Christ in a way they never could have in the Old Testament. Now, when we look at the original in Exodus 19.5, says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, that's Israel, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. In the Hebrew, that's the word am. In the Greek, it's the word laos. 
for all the earth is mine. The Septuagint actually adds, you will be a special people from all the nations. See, it's using these, all these different terms in, in synonymous ways. They're, they're not, not distinguishing them in, in these kind of technical distinctions that that's, are being imposed on it. Verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a royal priest, and a holy nation, uh, ethnos. See, that's sometimes people think, well, ethnos, that just refers to Gentiles in the New Testament because that's, that's the Greek word, but that's not true. It can apply to Jews also. Here's the term kingdom of priests. It's this phrase, basuleon heretuma, that's found here in the Septuagint, and it's translated royal priests. And that's what we are. That's where we get this terminology that we are royal priests is by application of uh, Exodus 19.6 as it's used. And and then we get into passages like Revelation 1.6, that he has made us kings. Now, this is a little different form of the word. It's not the word basileon or basileia. It's, I mean, basileon, it's the word basileia, and it can mean it means uh, he has made us kings, or literally here it's a kingdom, comma. There's no and. Made us kings, priests to God and fa- to, the, to his God and Father. And the word basileia can refer to king or kingly rule or a kingdom. He's made us a kingdom, priests to God. Revelation 5.10 uses a slightly different form of the Greek word where it's translated, he's, we, and have made us kings and priests to our God. That's our destiny. So we're in training now. I think that's what Peter is saying. By learning to serve the Lord now, we're in training, because when, when the Lord comes in his kingdom, we are going to be uh, fully functional royal priests. We're going to be ruling and reigning and serving God uh, with him, so we need to be about our business of being trained now so that we have the capacity to serve him uh, at that point. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon this passage, to be reminded that the thrust of this whole section is to serve you, to uh, realize that our whole life is to be in service to you, uh, and that is in terms of training for the future. It's, it's predicated on growth, craving the milk of the word that we may grow uh, to maturity so that we can serve you. Father, we challenge you in all the things that we're studying and thinking through that we might realize more and more that our service to you is of greater value than anything else that we do in life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.